This is True Self, a podcast about seeking to know who we really are using the language of astrology. I'm Laura Sweat. Imagine you are in the middle of a vast and beautiful garden. It goes out as far as you can see in every direction. Every delicious and nutritious food you might want to eat is in the garden. Every flower you might want to smell, every butterfly or bird you might want to see is in your garden, lush and humming with life. You feel you want to eat a peach, so you walk out into your garden, walk through the rich color and scent of everything you could ever want to experience, and you find a peach tree and you pluck from it a ripe, round, pink, and juicy peach and bite into it. Its skin sun-warmed, its flesh sweet and fragrant, the nectar drips down your chin. Your enjoyment is deep and total. It fills your whole body. From the top of your head to the tips of your toes, you are filled with waves of pleasure. Welcome to the sign of Taurus. On today's episode, we're thinking about the delicious sign of Taurus and its representation of abundance and the fulfillment of desire. We'll ask what wisdom traditions have to teach us about desire and its fulfillment and how those qualities touch our own lives using our birth chart as a guide. And we'll explore what happens to us and the world when we get numb to our own pleasure and fulfillment. Enjoyment, abundance, pleasure, and you this week on True Self. episode that in astrology, the planet Venus owns the concepts of love, beauty, and pleasure. Venus rules two signs, Libra and Taurus. As an air sign, Libra is the active expression of Venus, where we create love, create beauty, create pleasure. As an earth sign, Taurus is the receptive expression of Venus, where we receive love, receive beauty, and receive pleasure. So if, as we talked about in the Libra episode, eros is creative yearning and desire, the force that moves us toward another that we might create something, Libra is where we fulfill desire, and Taurus is where our desires are fulfilled. The idea of desire and its fulfillment is a central concept in many wisdom traditions. So let's dig into this. In the 16th century, there was a philosopher. His name was Giordano Bruno, and he managed to discern from his philosophy alone a great number of things about the physical universe that wouldn't be proven scientifically for hundreds of years after his death. At a time when Copernicus was struggling to convince the world that the Earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around, Bruno was the first to imagine that stars were suns themselves that could host other solar systems, other worlds. He believed that the universe was infinite. 
He had a correct understanding of atoms, essentially as we understand them today, and he proposed the theory of gravity that, as far as I can tell, tracks with Einstein's theory of space-time, which was published about 400 years after Bruno's death. But he was a monk, not a scientist, and he actually spent most of his time considering the nature of God, which he saw as the same thing as the nature of the universe. And he described eros, or desire, as the force that bonded everything in the universe together. Essentially, he said desire was the glue that bonds material reality. That might sound super strange if you're not familiar with Hermeticism, so if I may quickly, grossly oversimplify a couple thousand years of complex wisdom tradition, the idea is that material reality is produced by our consciousness rather than the other way around that you can understand the whole of the manifest universe as essentially a dream of God, and you are a character in it, and so is your best friend, and so is your dog, and so is your house. And just as all the characters in your dreams are aspects of your own consciousness, all of the things in quote-unquote reality are essentially aspects of God, imagining that they are separate. So in a sense, when you dig down deep into your truest nature, you find that you are God. Anyway, when you think of reality this way, it seems a little less weird to think that what we are attracted to, what we desire, might be what moves the action of the dream forward. In fact, this is what Buddhism teaches us too, that what perpetuates samsara, the cycle of death and rebirth, is desire. Sometimes samsara is called the realm of desire. Back to Taurus, though. Taurus does not represent desire. It represents the fulfillment of desire, the pure enjoyment of getting what you want, the pleasure of existing, the pleasure of sensation. In some way, you can view that fulfillment as actually a kind of antidote to desire. Having what you want, being perfectly fulfilled, wanting nothing else, leaving no room for desire. In our culture, which is very achievement-oriented, we sometimes think of pleasure as something we'll get to on the weekend if we have time, or maybe two weekends from now if we can get it on the calendar. But if you ask yourself with an open heart what the point of being alive is, it's very likely that you would eventually arrive at the answer that the point is to enjoy the experience of being alive. Taurus is purely sensational. It's the enjoyment of things. The enjoyment of watching the willow in the backyard leaf and open as the spring unfolds. The enjoyment of snuggling up to the warm, solid presence of your partner. The enjoyment of letting chocolate melt in your mouth. This sensation is inevitably linked to resource, to what we have at hand. Enjoyment is derived from the bounty the earth gives us. What we receive from our environment, its fruits, that's what we are able to enjoy. There's an archetypal expression of the earth's bounty of resource, like the Garden of Eden, sort of like the scene I opened the podcast with today. But there's also our literal experience of it, our actual experience of it. If we can kind of keep pushing on the edges of how we typically think of our lives, everything we purchase and consume 
from our food to our clothes to our phones to the cup of tea we're drinking, that has been pulled up and out from the earth. It represents a little hunk of life of the earth that we're consuming. With the tea, the water, the herb that is steeping in it, the ceramic cup that holds it, the teapot we use to boil the tea, the gas that came through the stove that boiled the tea, there's life in all of these things. There's the life of the animal and plant material within them, but there's also the lives of the people who made them or brought them to us, made sure they could be directed to us, right? A little chunk of those people's life energy has been spent making our tea, our teapot, bringing us our water. The fruits of the garden of the earth are all around you, and you are eating them. Life has been consumed to make your sweater, to make your furniture, to make your walls and your floors. I'm not saying this is some kind of guilt trip. <laughs> life is perpetuated by consuming life on this planet. That's just the hand we've been dealt. There's just as much reason to joyously celebrate your own life continuing as there is to grieve the life that was given to continue it. But I do think it's something to take seriously. When I think about the sheer number of people who have given their time breathing to make sure I could buy slippers and gardening supplies and hot chocolate, that I can access comforts and pleasures and nourishment I'd never be able to access without those people, I feel blown over, completely overwhelmed by the number of human beings who support my life as it is. At a minimum, I want to be grateful for that. And when I think about the cost to the whole ecosystem of me having these things, the burning rainforests and dying species, I sometimes wonder if I should have them. But I'm compelled by the possibilities of this global system, or what I imagine is possible. What if we could all cooperatively give of ourselves to make these lovely comforts and joys for one another? But also, we only consumed what we most truly enjoyed, what gave us the deepest pleasure. If we did that, could we make this whole thing sustainable? Could we continue living on the planet and have the comforts we most deeply desire? I wonder this because I'm quite certain that the way we live now is not geared toward enjoying the fruits of the earth with ecstasy and delight. I'm betting that with each purchase you make, you are not struck dumb with bewildered joy at the bounty of life with which you are surrounded. It's not very common in consumer culture. Very often, we don't consume because it will truly bring us pleasure. We desire something, then we get it, and we don't feel fulfilled. Sometimes we buy things just because it feels good to have stuff, and then we don't enjoy the stuff. But since we are consuming the earth to have the stuff, since life is the only thing we can consume... The kind of consumption where we just build a fortress of stuff around us can get really ugly. Like burning down the rainforests ugly. Like dumping chemicals into our rivers ugly. Like Miami will be underwater in 80 years ugly. That's what unchecked consumption does to us. And it's all the more heartbreaking that we don't even enjoy most of what we get from it. That we're so often numb to the pleasures we have access to. The truly insane number of pleasures we have access to. So to that end, I'd like to talk about Uranus in Taurus. 
Uranus is going to be in Taurus for seven years until 2026. It had a brief little entry into Taurus in 2018, then it retrograded back into Aries, and then it officially shifted into Taurus in 2019, March of 2019. And like I said, it'll be there for seven years. One of the reasons this feels very relevant to me is that the last time Uranus was in Taurus was, uh, let me get the dates straight here, from 1934 until 1942. Those might be recognizable dates to you. <laughs> um, they go along with World War II, right? And we know that Uranus creates these very revolutionary effects, really radical shifts. And Taurus, as I've been describing, uh, talks about our relationship to resource. It helps us understand our relationship to resource. So last year, I was thinking a lot about this in relationship to Pluto and Saturn and Capricorn, which is another Earth sign. And I would describe to people that we were in a phase of time when it felt like all of our structures were going to be torn down and rebuilt. And that because Uranus was in Taurus, that would affect our relationship to resource really strongly. My hope being, since the moment I started seeing this and thinking about it, that that would mean that the world would start to gain some sanity in the way that it consumes life on the planet, right? Because we need to save ourselves from doom. And when I got to this year, when I got to 2020, I realized that this year was so much more intense than last year. And it freaked me out. And I stopped telling people about what I was seeing during 2020 because I have always felt that astrology should be useful to people. And I felt like if I talked about what I thought was going to happen this year, I was just going to freak people out. And I didn't want to do that. So I just stopped doing it. Um, Now that we're in the middle of the shit, though, I feel like it's okay to go ahead and say, um, this is a wild ride. And the world is, in some sense, resetting its relationship to how resources are distributed. And that is not typically a chill experience. I also think that the pandemic and our uh, social isolation and all that stuff is giving us the flavor of what is going to happen. I don't think you need to worry about this looking like World War II because it already doesn't. It already looks different. Um, There are obviously overlaps. There's the depression, right, that was very prominent during 1934 to 1942 um, that we're heading into. And there's the mass uh, mobilization of government resource, right? What's hopeful to me is that that mobilization is happening in response to a disease and not in response to a war. That feels like maybe better. Maybe we won't have to have a war. Um, but that shift, when you look at the post-war era, the world had really designed its economy 
to benefit the working class after World War II. That was in some sense because uh, the capitalist countries were afraid of communism. But that's still what happened. It was the ultimate outcome of the whole thing. And mm, what am I trying to say? I guess this. Resource is a very serious issue. And pleasure is a very serious issue. Over the next six years, all of us are going to experience our relationship to resource and pleasure and enjoyment changing radically. And as that happens, uh, what we experience in our personal lives is going to have an application to the collective story. So as I move into the next piece of this podcast where I talk about what Taurus means in your own birth chart, I'd like to encourage you to think about how your personal story of these Taurus themes connects to the collective story and to stay in touch with that over the next six years because we are all going through something together and it's going to be relevant. All right. Here we go. If you would like to use a worksheet to help you track what each sign means in your own birth chart, you can go to my website. I have a worksheet there for you. It's 8th.house, that's numeral 8th.house.com backslash true, T-R-U-E, dash self, S-E-L-F. Or you could just go to 8th house, 8th dot house, and uh, click the true self thing. That might be a little easier. Okay, getting started. If you're a Taurus rising, Taurus represents your first house, your house of identity and self, and also of your body. This means that enjoyment and pleasure is going to emerge in your identity or also in your physical experience. That's kind of how we think about Taurus is like that deep embodied pleasure. Uh, Taurus rising has kind of a bigger capacity for feeling that really, really deep pleasure. And that has to do with the sense of enjoyment and pleasure emerging from your body because we associate the first house with your body. If you're a Taurus rising, you tend to come into situations, approach situations from the perspective of how you can enjoy them. And you tend to be really identified with the characteristics and traits of having a pleasurable, enjoyable time. Other things about Taurus and Taurus rising that are uh, maybe a little less clearly identified with the pleasure enjoyment themes include a large amount of stubbornness, a kind of, um, it's a very chill stubbornness that Taurus has. It's not an angry stubbornness. It's just like, I'm not doing what you want me to do and I don't care. <laughs> that's, that's the Taurus stubbornness. Um, and a kind of like desire to be down to earth and like just an everyday person. Taurus risings, um, they can be kind of weird, but they tend to like to be identified as like chill, regular, normal. 
If you're a Taurus rising, then your seventh house is Scorpio. Scorpio is the opposite sister sign of Taurus. And so that means that you're a little less identified with traits like being concerned with power and control and that you might find those in your partners. We'll talk about that more next week in the Scorpio episode. If you're a Taurus rising, then the revolution Uranus is bringing to your life is happening in your identity, in your sense of self. And so things you might expect over the next six years and that you saw begin happening a little bit in 2018 and solidly last year, those changes include changes to the way people see you, the way people think about you, and the way you think about yourself. Uh, really big changes in in those. So it's a big one for you. <laughs> Uranus going through the, the first house is a big deal. And it's something that not every lifetime is going to experience because Uranus moves so slowly. If you're an Aries or an Aries rising, then Taurus characterizes your second house, which is the house of worth and value, often where we experience our sense of self-worth. This means that the sense of self-worth is identified with um, being able to build something for yourself, being able to make your own way and have your own resources, and that the sense of enjoyment and pleasure emerges in your sense of your own value, in having other people value you, and sometimes just quite literally in receiving money. For an Aries or Aries rising, Taurus uh, or Uranus moving through Taurus in the second house means that something about the sense of self-worth, the sense of value in the world is getting radically shifted over the next six years. And so you will have already started experiencing this, especially last year. And it it's going to be a shift that changes the way you think about your value in the world. If you're a Pisces or a Pisces rising, Taurus characterizes your third house. That's the house of day-to-day travel and communication. I like to describe this house as if you're walking through a village. It describes local travel, so it's the kind of travel that is familiar to you. Whereas the opposite of this house, the ninth house, is travel to places that are thoroughly unfamiliar to you. But the third house really is is very much about the kind of communication you're happening in the you're happening, you're having in those day-to-day travels that you have. Um, this is a fascinating house for me in the current context, particularly because our worlds are becoming so small. <laughs> and I think for a Pisces or a Pisces rising, when you think about the Taurian sense of enjoyment and pleasure emerging in the house, that deep enjoyment and pleasure can come from the people you're talking to every day, the conversations you're having every day, and your daily little trails that you follow, the places that you go on a day-to-day basis. For many of us right now, this is walks (laughs) that we have. Um... 
But also you can kind of think of in the third house, this is anybody you're talking to on social media on a daily basis or even like the video chats you're having daily. That's where this like kind of deep pleasure emerges. Although in regular life, uh, it looks a little bit different. For a Pisces or Pisces rising, Uranus is radically shifting the way you experience those day-to-day travels and communications. And I'm going to go ahead and confess I'm having a little trouble imagining exactly what that's going to look like for you. Um, Although, arguably, it's happening right now. (laughs) But I know it is happening for everybody. I would say kind of keep an eye out for the third house also tells us about our family relationships, family, uh, not our parents, not our roots, but like our siblings, our aunts, our cousins, our uncles, and our friends that we have sibling-like relationships with. The, the kind of extended family. So you might keep an eye out for shifts in that part of your life as well. If you're an Aquarius or an Aquarius rising, Taurus characterizes your fourth house. This is a big one. It's the house of our home, our family, our roots, our origins. And with Taurus characterizing the fourth house, the sense of deep enjoyment and pleasure emerges in the home Um, and so that's a place where you can get just like that rich fulfillment. And also, uh, Aquarius can have a real interest in roots in, um, where they come from and they can get really deep pleasure and enjoyment out of that. It is not uncommon for Aquarius to have these kind of, uh, really deep interests in understanding family history kind of stuff. Um, Also means, with Taurus characterizing your fourth house, that something about the home environment was very, like, um, we're like everybody else. Like, it was very, like, we're normal, um, which can kind of contribute to the Aquarian tendency to want to be different, coming from the kind of aggressive normalcy of Taurus. With... Uranus moving through your fourth house, your house of home, family, and origins. You're going to be experiencing over the next six years a really radical shift in how you experience your home and also your family and possibly radical shifts in how you think about where you came from. If you're a Capricorn or a Capricorn rising, Taurus characterizes your fifth house. This is the house of creativity fun, and children. And having Taurus characterizing your fifth house means that deep, rich fulfillment and enjoyment comes out of creativity. In the last episode, when we talked about Libra, Gemini has a Libra fifth house, and I talked about that as being part of how I thought about the creative genius of Gemini because they're Creativity is really associated with this sign that is all about creating beauty, creating art. So that's a really nice overlap. For Capricorn, with the fifth house as Taurus, the receptive aspect of Venus, it's more like the deep, enjoying, fulfilled energy comes through when you create something, when you make something. So it's not necessarily that you're creating beauty here. It's that you receive your own pleasure by creating things. 
I am not always clear. I hope that comes through in some way. For Capricorn and Capricorn rising, Uranus moving through this fifth house means some kind of radical shift in the way that you create and your creativity, potentially, in your relationship to like children or anything that you would create like children, but also potentially in your sexuality. I've known some people with their fifth houses being affected right now who are experiencing shifts in the way they relate to their sexuality. If you're a Sagittarius or Sagittarius rising, Taurus characterizes your sixth house. That's your house of day-to-day habits and your day-to-day work environment. What happens in the sixth house is all the things that we do daily that add up to something affecting our health, like whether you're exercising daily or smoking daily, right? Those things add up over time to affect your health. Sixth house is often talked about as the house of health, but that's a little oversimplified because lots of houses affect our health. Um, But it's also the house that characterizes how we are in service. And so a lot of the time people see their employment showing up here. Traditionally, the sixth house was the house that showed enslavement. And there are some overlaps in our relationship to our employers um, because we find ourselves in service there, right? So depending on what else you have going on in the sixth house, sometimes being in service, being unservice is like a clean expression. It's easy Sometimes it's difficult, but regardless, that's what the sixth house characterizes or what the sixth house means. So with Taurus characterizing that house, there's an enjoyment of uh, daily habits. And there also might be a real genuine pleasure that emerges from being uh, of service and in service. So Something about your daily work environment, if you're a Sagittarius or a Sagittarius rising, should create a sense of pleasure and enjoyment. When I think about the Sagittarius enjoyment and pleasure in service, I think about how Sagittarius is so driven to give people the knowledge that they need. Sagittarius, I am a Sagittarius son. So I can say this, Sagittarius can be really obnoxious in wanting to share everything that it knows, right? But there is a genuine sense of service in that desire. And that's how I think of this sixth house Taurian overlap is that for Sagittarius to be of service contains genuine deep pleasure and sometimes We are very over-eager to share what we know (laughs) as a result of that. For Sagittarius, the radical shift that is happening as Uranus moves through Taurus is a shift in your day-to-day work reality. Um, Your day-to-day work environment and also your habits even. And so, again, that started last year. Obviously, there are ways in which this is affecting a lot of people right now, not just Sagittarius's. But what we know from your chart is that 
the change in your work environment, the change in your day-to-day habits is going to be the most substantial thing that comes out of this transit for you. And so that's where the energy is focused. If you're a Scorpio or Scorpio rising, Taurus characterizes your seventh house, which is the house of partners and intimate relationships. For Scorpio, that means that a deep sense of enjoyment and pleasure emerges in intimate relationship. And it means that while the Scorpio may identify with the side of themselves that is more secretive, cautious, survival-oriented, they find this deep pleasure and snuggliness in their partners. This, to me, the Taurus seventh house is one of the reasons I think Scorpios are actually so sweet. Um, Most of the Scorpios I know are really sweet people. They're just inscrutable. You just don't know what's going on with them. And the Taurus seventh house describes how Scorpio takes so much pleasure in intimate relationship, how intimate relationship is just this source of ecstatic joy for Scorpio, which I think is very sweet and and I love it. For Scorpio, the radical shift that is happening over the next six years is happening in the way that they relate to partners in their intimate relationships. Um, Like I said, that started last year. And with a seven-year transit, I wouldn't expect that this was something that would just mean um, something that's going to change in your current relationship, like you'll break up with someone and you'll get with someone else. Instead, this transit is really about just a fundamental change in how you regard partners. It doesn't mean that you'll stop taking deep pleasure and enjoyment in your intimate relationships. That is in your character no matter what. But it means that something about how you relate to others is going to be radically shifted through this time. If you're a Libra or Libra rising, then Taurus characterizes your eighth house, which is the house of birth, death, and transformation. This is an odd one to explain, (laughs) but it means that in some way, deep pleasure and enjoyment comes from transformation for Libra. Um, really just sensual enjoyment comes from that. It's, it's not as weird as it sounds. You know, the eighth house is, is where we find intensity, right? Like the intensity of the transformation from oneself to another, it is not so strange to find yourself experiencing deep sensation from that kind of um, experience. But it is a little flipped from what we would expect, right? Um, It's being able to take deep pleasure from some of the more difficult parts of life. So this to me is a special thing about Libra. It's It characterizes kind of the sense of beauty that Libra has to be able to get into that deep enjoyment of uh, the dark and difficult things. For Libra, the next 
six years, this Uranus and Taurus transit is going to be changing the way you change. Um, it's going to be really affecting a very deep transformation in your life. And also, I would say affecting the way that you heal, the way that you come through change and giving you some kind of new resource in that department. If you're a Virgo or Virgo rising, Taurus characterizes your ninth house, which is the house of travel and exploration and growth and higher knowledge. I had a dream last night that I was going through this explanation and that I got to the ninth house and that I was trying to say that Taurus was Aries ninth house and I got really confused. Anyway, I've been I've been a little um, nervous about getting to the ninth house here as if I won't know how to explain it. So I guess we'll see how I do with it. Anyway, Virgo, Taurus characterizes your ninth house. It means that the deepest enjoyment and pleasure for Virgo comes from learning new things and growing and expanding. And even it can mean, although we don't typically think of this with Virgo, but it can even mean that long-range travel brings deep pleasure to Virgo. Um, Typically, though, I would associate the Taurus ninth house for Virgo with Virgo's love of learning because the ninth house really is about learning and Taurus describes where we get deep enjoyment and pleasure. If you're Virgo or Virgo rising, Uranus in Taurus is going to be radically changing your relationship to learning and growth over the next six years. One way to think about that or one way to conceive of how that might look is also a really big change in your relationship to spirituality as a Virgo or Virgo rising because even though we talk about the ninth house as any type of sort of big learning and big growth, it ultimately holds um, learning about spiritual truth. And so I would expect for many Virgos and Virgo risings that this seven-year transit is going to shift your relationship to spirituality and to higher truth. Some Virgo and Virgo risings might experience it as getting into higher education or moving to a foreign place or doing something really new, but I would think most people would experience it as a spiritual shift. If you're a Leo or Leo rising, Taurus characterizes your 10th house. 10th house is the house of career and reputation, what we're known for in the world. And so this is a very easy thing to understand if we know Leo The sense of deep pleasure and enjoyment that characterizes Taurus emerges in the reputation, in the way that we are seen and in the mark we leave on the world as Leo and Leo rising. It also means that in your career and reputation, you might be seen as someone who is very sensual and earthy. Um, It might even mean that you're seen as someone who is down to earth, Um, but Ultimately, the way that your career unfolds brings you to this Taurian, sensual (laughs) kind of reputation. 
If you're a Leo or Leo rising, Uranus in Taurus over the next six years is radically changing the way that you leave your mark on the world and the way that you will be known. This strikes me as particularly important for Leos and Leo risings. Um, You know, right before we had the eclipse cycle we're currently in, which is a Capricorn Cancer eclipse cycle, we were in a Leo Aquarius eclipse cycle. That was, oh God, 2016 to 2018, I want to say, maybe early 20, yeah, 2016 to early 2018. That's correct. Um, And so you had this eclipse cycle that really shifted your sense of identity right before we went into this period. And now you're having a radical change in the way that you are known and the way that you leave your mark. So those things seem related to me. And I think your stories, Leos, are pretty important to what's happening for the collective. If you're a Cancer or Cancer rising, Taurus characterizes your 11th house, which is the house of your social circles and your community. This means that the deep pleasure and enjoyment that characterizes Taurus comes out in your participation in a group and the way you show up in a social circle or a community. This often means that some of the deepest enjoyment cancer gets is from its people, from the community it finds itself in, which makes a lot of sense when we think about the nourishing motherly qualities of cancer and the way that it likes to take care of people. Um, It also means you might find a lot of grounded, down-to-earth, kind of self-oriented individuals in your social circle. For cancer, Uranus in Taurus means that you are experiencing a radical shift in your social circle and in the kinds of people you find yourself in community with. Finally, if you are a Gemini or a Gemini rising, Taurus characterizes your 12th house. The 12th house is the house of the unseen and the collective unconscious and the karmic past. And it is a very hard house to describe. (laughs) But I'm going to go back to, once again, when I was talking about Scorpio in the Libra episode. And I said, Libra characterizes Scorpio's 12th house. And that strikes me as very Scorpionic to be able to create beauty in the realm of what is totally unconscious. So for Gemini, Gemini doesn't create beauty in the realm of what is totally unconscious. It receives beauty in the realm of what is totally unconscious. Um, Having a Taurus 12th house for Gemini means that Gemini's own sort of self-interest and like desire to just like consume and enjoy yourself can be a little bit unconscious. It can be something that you don't necessarily have a firm grasp on. For Gemini, the Uranus in Taurus transit we're having right now 
is going to affect your baseline programming. So transits in the 12th house, they change us, but they change us in ways that we just don't necessarily have a grasp on. We can't necessarily describe to someone else how they changed us. It's as if our code is being rewritten when we have a 12th house transit. Transit. They also can be uh, pretty uncomfortable. They can feel really strange because of that inability to put our arms around what exactly is happening. So for Gemini, in the next period of time, in the next six years, as the world goes through this transit together, the advice would be not to worry if you can't describe precisely what is happening for you. And to know that when you walk out of this transit, something about you is going to be profoundly changed in a very, very deep way. And you're going to be living a different kind of life on the other side of it. In closing, I'd like to talk for just a minute about the genius of Marie Kondo. Key point for distinguishing items which spark joy from those which don't is to feel the item in your hands. Take each piece of You might be familiar with Marie Kondo. Her book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, has sold more than eight and a half million copies, and she has a Netflix show where she helps families get out from under very cluttered conditions in their homes. Her central premise, which has been widely mocked, is that each object you own should spark joy. To use her method, you gradually work through every object in your home, hold it in your hands, and determine whether it sparks joy. If it sparks joy, you keep it. If it doesn't, you say goodbye. It feels as if every part or every cell of your body lifts up little by little. This is the sensation your body would feel when you touch items that spark joy. The reason I love Marie Kondo so much is not only that she has made my life more tidy and ordered, although she has, it's that her method is a way to reset our relationship to what we consume and to orient our consumption toward enjoyment and pleasure rather than toward just having stuff. And if we could really learn that, if we could let ourselves deeply enjoy what we have, if we could experience the sensation of having so fully that we don't have to keep buying stuff that we won't savor and relish, if we could really see the outrageous abundance that already surrounds us, I honestly, truly believe we could save the world. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave an iTunes review if you enjoyed the podcast. That would help me so much right now. And you can find show notes on my website at 8th.house. That's numeral 8, T-H dot H-O-U-S-E. I should say, actually, the podcast isn't approved by iTunes yet, so you can't leave an iTunes review yet if you're listening to this when I'm posting it. But please leave one eventually or subscribe, subscribe somewhere. That helps too. Um, Lots and love, lots and lots of love to you and everyone you know. I hope you're well and I will talk to you next week. 